real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. In the first instance, I'm sure you're all listening to restrictions and uh, the government's restrictions around the reopening of the live music sector. And there will be no major easing of the remaining COVID-19 restrictions until the end of September to allow students and schools and colleges to return to classrooms. This has disappointed people no end today. The government is drafting a new plan for fully reopening uh, the country, which will be published at the end of the month. Now, it's a plan. And I suppose it's a roadmap. It doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, everything will reopen and everything will go back to normal. It's not going to be like COVID doesn't exist anymore by the end of September, although a lot of people will feel that we should be heading towards that direction. However, the vast majority of the existing coronavirus restrictions are expected to stay in place until at least the end of September. And Taoiseach Mihamar wants to see the successful return of schools and colleges in the coming weeks before making any significant changes to the social distancing rules. Uh, confirmations and communions will be permitted next month, but it is unlikely that the indoor live entertainment Entertainment will be given the green light to resume. There is no roadmap, no roadmap for the entertainment sector. <sighs> Instead, a roadmap for the entertainment sector is likely to be published and a series of pilots for indoor arts events in venues and theatres will be held. A lot of people are not happy about this. They're saying, well, hold on for a second. I can't go to a gig in Ireland. Not even an indoor gig, a 50 or 60 people or a decent gig in Ireland, all right? An outdoor event where it would be considered to be reasonably safe outdoors. I've seen some of the outdoor events over the last few weeks. These silly events. I'll be honest with you, silly events. With roped off bubbles of people wearing masks. And, you know, they look like the most boring events I've ever been to with the greatest respect to the artists that are playing at them. Because there's no atmosphere, because there's nobody there. And meanwhile, 130 miles up the road, I can go to a full, full on event. You know, an outdoor event with DJs banging the tunes out and bands playing their brains out. I can go to England. I can go to outdoor. There was a, they had a huge event yesterday in Earl's Court, I think it was, in London, for the NHS. It was packed, thousands, shoulder to shoulder. And here we are in Ireland, and we can't even have something, you know, that remotely resembles normality. And some people believe this is just maybe overcautiousness. The, the argument is that we have to wait till the colleges and schools go back so we can see the two-week delay and the effect it'll have on cases. So we're still basing everything on case numbers. Maybe that's wrong, maybe that's right. To give me a bit of uh, advice, I suppose, is this is Paul Moyne, who's an immunologist and professor uh, at Manute University. Good afternoon to you, Paul. Afternoon, Niall. Paul, are we being overcautious, considering that, what is it, 90% of the adult population are now vaccinated? Are we being overcautious? more in terms of the management and planning now you mentioned the entertainment industry there and it just amazes me that we're still talking about doing pilots for indoor events if you cast your mind back a couple of months and we're doing pilots in outdoor events for example you know the ivy gardens but those were set up and you've alluded to this they were set up in such a way there's essentially no risk so yeah, with little cordoned off yeah, bubbles yeah. of six people, yeah. So, so, so that didn't reflect the reality of what something like would look like uh, down the road. And so in my view, back in the summer, we should have been doing these types of pilots, not in terms of, yes, okay, maybe some outdoor events, but also actually indoor events and begin to look at, you know, coming back to normal and holding indoor events, you know, without masking, without social distancing. And if there are risks, you know, try to but that's a proper and, trial, and isn't it? I mean, yeah, that's, that's, you know what so I mean? To, the fact that we're still talking about this. And then the other thing that surprises me in all of this is that during the summer, I, I thought during the summer was a good 
time, and I, I said this on a number of occasions, I thought it was a good time in terms of, you know, when schools had closed, you know, the, the summer months, these viruses transmit less well. So then the idea of putting it back and putting it back to September when we know schools are going to reopen, universities are going to reopen. But it's not even going to be September, Paul. The roadmap will be published in September. It could be October, November. And then they may turn around. Of course, as you know, we're coming into the winter season where the flu will kick in as well. We're coming in and they're saying the reason for this is they don't want to put undue pressure on the health service. I mean, what sort of health service have we got if we can't take a little bit of pressure? Well, I think another key point is in terms of our vaccination program. Our vaccination program has been really, really successful. It's been rolled out really, really successful. A lot of people Absolutely. and organisations like HSE deserve a lot of credit for that. And the important thing to remember here is the vaccines are doing what they were designed to do. They're, they're stopping people from getting very sick. Yes, they're breaking they're the link between, I suppose, cases but, and death. But, but, yeah. but there is a thing, and they're also actually reducing... Uh, people getting uh, the number of people getting infected, reducing onward uh, transmission, but they're not perfect in that sense, and we shouldn't expect them to be. So there's a lot of discussion now and a lot of commentary around these breakthrough infections, and we see it, for example, in Israel after four or five months, immunity waning. But again, that shouldn't come as a surprise because when we get vaccinated or infected, we produce antibodies. Those antibodies last for a number of months, and then they got rid of, they're degraded within the body. Uh, but that doesn't mean we we have an immunity if we're exposed to the virus again we've got memory cells and can produce more of those antibodies and then get rid of the virus but yeah but Paul are we I mean if you look since Christmas you know and obviously January and February were tough months right but from that point on things started to ease off a little bit mm-hmm. but Ireland have been looked at as possibly like outliers in Europe whereas you know other countries around Europe and I've spoken to people from other countries around Europe and they're looking at us and they're going oh you still have signs on the ground and you still have this and you still have that and you still mm-hmm. don't let people go to pubs without their vaccine certs and you still don't let well we didn't have the pubs open until a few weeks ago yeah, and, and they're looking at us like oh, Jesus everyone's way ahead of you here lads well, you know what I mean in other words there has to be a level of personal responsibility at this point and we're way ahead in vaccines so we really should be the outliers in the opposite extreme if you know what I mean yeah, I think I think certainly in terms of we, we have been cautious. I think one of the things, again, I've commented on this in the past, I don't think we've been good at terms of measuring risk and evaluating different levels of risk. You know, we've been very cautious right down to closing everything down, even a lot of outdoor activity when, again, the science was telling us the risk of outdoor transmission was really, really low. So I think one of the things that we probably should have been better at is you know, being able to differentiate between the different levels of risk and engage in activity, but also in terms of the different times of year, use the summer for that period when transmission is lower than the winter months. Because if you're talking now about a roadmap, for example, for the entertainment industry coming out at the end of September, you can think of many reasons then down the road in October, November, when these are the peak months for transmission of respiratory viruses. There, will, there could always be a reason as to push things back and back. Well, isn't, well isn't, this, isn't this the suggestion? A lot of people have a fear now that the government are going to put the country back into lockdown again in October because the health service will come under pressure. I mean, they mentioned there was 100, and because obviously the HSE hack, we weren't getting the live figures for deaths. Uh, but they gave us the figure the other day that was approximately, I think it was 130 deaths that happened in three months or whatever it was. I mean, if you look back at that, that's kind of one or two per day. Uh, over the space of that three months, which would be quite normal for people to die of a respiratory disease on a regular basis in this country. I mean, many people die a day, 90 people die probably yeah. every single day. I mean, we don't focus on people who die of other ailments the way we seems to be focusing. Are we over-focusing on it? 
I think what we've learned to do, we've learned to tolerate risk and the burden that comes, for example, with certain infections, for example, like flu. I think we probably still haven't learned in terms of what level of risk and burden we're willing to tolerate. And we will have to tolerate some because the virus isn't going away. And no. the question I ask is, like, what scenario do we envisage in terms of things improving? Because we've got most of the adult population already vaccinated. We're really well protected in terms of most of us in terms of from getting very seriously ill or dying from the infection. So are we getting close to as good as it's going to get? That's, that's the question I would ask. But there is an encouragement, of course, at the moment to get the 12 to 15-year-olds vaccinated. And I know trials are being done in America, um, you know, under 12. Um, now, I know I did listen to yourself on primetime there recently, and you had suggested that you weren't too keen yet on vaccinating children because you wanted to see more data in relation to that. Are you happy enough with that yet? Yeah, so, so my point on that, uh, I, I think we've been very cautious, even in terms of rolling out the vaccination programme, you know, in terms of restricting the use of some of the vaccines to certain age groups and I think we were probably too cautious in that sense and some decisions were reversed, which I think was good. The point I was making with respect to children where the bar has to be very high, there was a side effect associated with the use of the RNA vaccine. This is heart heart inflammation, yes. Yeah, heart inflammation. And it is quite rare, but it was noticed in younger people, especially younger men and boys. um, And it was especially noted in the 16 to 19-year-old age group. So it seemed to increase as you come down in, in years. And I was a little bit concerned maybe if that were to continue with the frequency increase at lower ages. And the point I was making was that with the trials, the trials weren't of sufficient size to pick up those side effects. It had been rolled out in the U.S. for the last number of months from maybe around the mm-hmm. beginning of June. It only manifests itself after the second dose. So from June until July, I think I was speaking then mid-July, we would have expected to see signals coming out. So my point was that in a few weeks, if there were safety signals, and I've been somewhat reassured in the sense that I, I don't think those safety signals are you know, are coming out in terms of we should be more concerned. So I'm certainly moving towards a situation where 12 to 15 year olds, I think it's, it's quite safe. So well, we, do, we do have to balance, of course, and most people talk about the balance, right, of we're well aware of the fact that 12 to 15 year olds are not at risk from COVID-19, mm-hmm. generally speaking, little or no risk whatsoever, actually. Yeah. And we have to balance that with the risk of the vaccine. And, and I'm not suggesting for a minute, by the way, that the vaccine is dangerous, but there is obviously all vaccines will carry a small amount of risk. So we have to balance the two risks uh, in the best interest of children, because we can't be in a situation where we're turning around and saying, well, children have to be the answer to protect the vulnerable because we're protecting the vulnerable, I hope, with vaccines anyway. So that shouldn't be the case, you know, shouldn't it? Yeah, I, I think it depends in terms of what your focus and what your objective is going to be. If your objective and the primary objective is really to stop people getting sick, and that's what the vaccines, and that's what the vaccines were developed, that's what they were tested for. Mm-hmm. They weren't tested to prevent... No, infection, so it's, yes. No, infection, and it so happens that actually it's really good to block some infection, to block some auto transmission, but not perfectly. Coming back to a point that you raised very early on uh, as part of this chat, now you were sort of saying, should we be focusing on cases rather than, I think probably over time now we should begin to move away from cases and begin to look at the burden of the virus in terms of our health Because the panic still seems to be there. I mean, last week we went over 2,000 cases and oh, it was all over the media and, and you neff it out saying this is the first time since January or February we've been over 2,000 cases per day. And I go, but does that really matter? Because realistically, we, before COVID came along, and I, and I don't want to sound like some sort of conspiracy theorist, but we never turned around and said, you know, oh, 2,000 people have a cold today or 2,000 people have the flu today or 2,000 people have this today or that today. We never did that. We seem to be very focused on that figure at the moment. And is that figure still important, Paul? 
Probably it is to a degree in the sense that there will be a percentage, albeit greatly, greatly reduced percentage of people who get the virus end up, you know, severely ill in hospitalisation. So if that number became very large. Obviously, you know, a percentage, even albeit small one, a very large number is still significant. But with the vaccinations, the vaccinations are doing a really good job despite all the variants. Like there's no variant that is resistant to the vaccines. Uh, okay, they may infect us a little bit more efficiently, but there's no... Uh, variant that can bypass, you know, the protective effects no. that uh, the vaccine offers. So in that sense, I do think our focus needs to be more in terms of what's the consequences of the infection with respect to... On, on so the ICU system. levels and hospi- uh, well, hospitalizations to some I, degree, because yeah, there has I, been confusion around the hospitalizations, and I know Leo Varadkar raised it recently as well, in, in suggesting that, you know, when we turn around and say, well, we've 78 people in hospital currently who are COVID positive... You know, are those 78 people actually in there because they have COVID? Are they being treated for yeah. COVID rather than being treated for something else and just happen to be COVID positive, which I think is an un- We need a bit more transparency on that figure, I think. Well, yeah, and, and then going back, you know, the focus being, if the focus is on transmission and limiting transmission, which is obviously what we want to do, and again, terms like herd immunity, it's going to be very difficult to achieve that, especially in the context of people who are vaccinated, there have been breakthrough infections. And again, we shouldn't be surprised with that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. vaccines against many, many respiratory pathogens or microbes, and very few, if any of them, provide what we would call sterilizing immunity that block, completely block infection. But we, we, what is herd immunity? Because herd immunity in the past, when we talked about things like smallpox and measles and all those kind of things, they used to say roughly around 85%. But then again, they were a different type of vaccination because they were vaccinations which prevented infection. Whereas these vaccinations are slightly different in the sense that they prevent, uh, prevent serious illness. Yeah. So it's a bit more difficult, I imagine, to get herd immunity then, isn't it? Yeah, but I think sometimes, you know, herd immunity is confused in terms of thinking that herd immunity means the virus is eradicated. That's not the case. So if you remember back at the very beginning of this, we were all very familiar with this or number, which was if I'm infected and many other people would I infect. And herd immunity is really getting that or value to around one. And mm. then you sort of have this sort of steady... Uh, equilibrium, and that's essentially uh, what happens. I, I get you. But 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 in those models, the reason why it's called herd immunity is if a certain proportion of the population is uh, infected and then protected, it actually protects the rest of the herd. So it's sort of an animal context. Yeah. In other so words, problem, measles measles still exactly. exists, but the majority yeah. of us won't catch it. Yeah. That's, that's but, it. So but, it still but exists. The, but the difference with measles and especially the vaccine, if you get measles or the vaccine, is essentially sterilizing immunity. We don't get sterilizing immunity with this. No. Measles is one of the exceptions, and I sometimes see that as used as a comparison. I, I think it's a very poor comparison because it's some it's somewhat unique in that sense. What would but what would be a good comparison to use if you, if you discuss it? I think what's probably going to happen over time is this, and most scientists agree now that this is going to become endemic. So it'll reach sort of in equilibrium. It's going to be probably around that or value of one. At some parts of the year, it's going to dip below, so we'll see very little of it. And then in the winter time, when it mm-hmm. transmits better, you're probably going to see outbreaks. So Eventually, is it going to be in the future somewhat similar to influenza, whereby we will have a number of people every year that yeah. will get seriously ill? We will have a number of people, sadly, normally those who are in a vulnerable state or those who are elderly yeah. that will pass away because how many people, probably six, seven hundred people would die regularly the flu in Ireland anyway. Yeah. So are we, are we going to see that with COVID where it will exist for a long time and maybe unfortunately will take some lives every single year? Yeah, and I think this is what happens. This is what happens with pandemics. Pandemics come and they will go, but there will be a consequence. And this virus is going to be stay with us 
uh, indefinitely. And I think you're going to see some outbreaks. Unfortunately, some people, yeah, will get very sick. Some people will die. But most of the population will be reasonably well protected and protected from a mix of things. First of all, in terms of being vaccinated, that really lowers the attrition of the, of the virus. It protects us. Mm-hmm. It almost cheats the virus because it gives us immunity before you're exposed to the virus. But when we're vaccinated, even if we're subsequently infected, that in a way sort of tops up our immunity and probably gives us protection against the most current variant. So the, sort of the, the immune system is educated over time as well. So all of that, so we're building up this bank of immunity all of the time. But the immunity in our immune system, it tends to, you know, in terms of its efficiency, decreases a bit, especially as we age. And that's why we end up being more prone mm. to infections. Well, then, well, then, then is it a good idea that we go down at some point that we will have to, and we all have to accept that, that people sadly will die? I mean, that's an acceptance that we have to have, the same way as we accept people die of other diseases in the world. And, and that we go down the, the route that they've gone down in the UK and many other countries where they have basically said, look, it's now down to personal responsibility. We have to accept that people will catch it. We have to accept that people will die uh, in the future. You know, but not obviously to the numbers that we would have had at the start where we had no protection. Um, and we just have to move on with our lives. Is that the way we have to start looking at things? I, th- I think so. Now. I think we have to look long term now and be honest and be honest with people in terms of this is what actually it's going to look like. And we're very getting very close now, the fact that we've most of the population vaccinated. We're getting very close, I think, to that situation. And I can see in time we will end up with that situation and probably maybe reach one whereby maybe older people will be in the same way vaccinated for flu, would probably be vaccinated and maybe get a booster mm-hmm. you know, each year. And that would give them some protection in terms of increasing their antibodies and, and giving them some protection against infection to supplement that immune system, which may not be as efficient as it was uh, in younger okay. years. So uh, that's certainly probably what we're moving towards. And finally, just in relation to what Michal Martin is saying, and he talks about you know the schools and colleges and, and waiting for that, and two weeks after that, as, as we know, everything gets delayed by two weeks because you have to wait to see what the result is or what the, the impact of doing certain things is. I mean, you disagree with that because as far as you're concerned, you will always be waiting. There will always be something that you have to wait for. In other words, you know, when you have these test events, like they did back in Liverpool back a few months ago before yep. they had their Freedom Day, they basically piled, you know, 3,000 people into a venue, tested them all, and then tested them all on the way out again. So you think we just have to go for it and, and go back to, you know, doing things which are normal and then testing them rather than doing things in a controlled environment. I think no matter what we decide, now there's always going to be risks. You try to identify them and mitigate them as well as you can. But I think you need to be upfront as well in terms of saying by saying, OK, we're going to open the schools. The schools will still be open in October. They'll still be open in November. Whatever they contribute in terms of transmission of the virus, that will still be there. So I think sometimes we think that, you know, by having, you know, making certain decisions during the summer that we put credit in the bank for later on in the year. And that's not really the way it works. You have to respond to the situation in time. And maybe now is a better time to do it because, of course, well, if, we, if we start well, waiting until October, well, I, November, we're already I, in trouble with the HSC well, anyway. Mid-summer, for example, if yeah. you're looking at outdoor you know, gigs, things like that, I thought summer was a good time. Perfect if you look time, back, yeah. and, you know, a number mm. of weeks ago when the UK fully opened up, virtually all the predictions and people were predicting Armageddon and that didn't happen. It didn't happen. I think, and no. I, I think, I think that's well, I mean, the modelling has, point. Paul, the modelling has been pretty much inaccurate all the way along through this. I mean, we were told three or four weeks ago, oh, if we opened the pubs, sure, hundreds would die. Sure, it, you know what I mean? It didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, those figures went out. Just finally, by the way, in relation to the kind of mixing and matching of uh, 
vaccines. Yep. You know, I mean, this idea that's been suggested that it's okay to have this kind of cocktail, I suppose, of, of vaccines. And the WHO doesn't necessarily agree with this idea. They believe that those vaccines would be far better off given to third world countries rather than mixing and matching over here where we don't really need to mix and match. We only got 500,000 vi- yep. Pfizer vaccines from Romania yesterday. Do you think it's a good idea to mix and match? There's two, diff- two different issues in there, uh, Niall. So one is in terms of mixing of vaccines. Mixing of vaccines, so let's say in a double-dose regimen, there's scientific reasons as to why mixing of vaccines work very well, especially with the AstraZeneca. Because with the AstraZeneca, when you give the second dose, you can get a neutralizing response, so it doesn't work as well. So, in, so it has been shown, there is data out there showing that that mixing works and produces a stronger immune response. But if we're talking about the mixing of vaccines in the context of a national booster program, I don't think we're at a stage where we need a national booster program, especially at a time if you look at this in a global context. Okay, we're doing really, really well. If you look at high-income countries where most of the populations are, you know, well vaccinated, but there are other low-income countries where maybe 1%, 2% of the population. So there, we're looking at a booster program, and I see Mike Ryan is basically, and the analogy is very good in terms of, yes, we have a life jacket and we're looking for a second one when some people have none. And I think that's a really good analogy because what we will do is by booster program, we're reasonably well protected in terms of protecting us. We're using up vaccines we don't need to when use we, up, really. Yeah, when we give it, take a booster, it may protect us from maybe getting infected and maybe limiting uh, transmission, but it won't have a very big effect in terms of minimizing effects on illness and death. Whereas other countries, if you have 1% of the population, those vaccines there would have an enormous benefit in terms of saving yeah. people's lives. Yeah, okay. All right, well, listen, Paul, thank you very much indeed, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. You're welcome, there you go, Paul Moyna, who's an immunology professor at the New University, and uh, suggesting that maybe we missed a trick over the summer. We should have had those outdoor events where we could have actually tested and seen, you know, tested the water, you know, thrown a few thousand people into a field. And I don't mean these, I, I, I'm going to be straight with you, I believe they're silly events. These events where you see people, a band up on a stage, playing their heart out, and there's like 50 people in a field that's an acre the size of a football pitch, you know, cordoned off into six people bubbles. So what's the point of that? That's not testing anything. So that's, that's what we're doing at the moment anyway. The whole idea of a test event is that you put people into an event of some sort of level of normality and we see how we get on and what happens at it. That's a test event. What they did back in Liverpool before they had the Freedom Day in the UK, where they piled 3,000 people into a big room with a DJ banging out the tunes, and then they test them afterwards to see. And in that particular event, by the way, I think there was only one case of COVID, and they didn't get it actually at the event. They were one of the people that were turned away, uh, and they got it on public transport on the way home. So in saying that, what we need to do is not be missing tricks. It's going to be too late now. The live, I, I really feel sorry for the, so sorry for the people in the arts and entertainment industry. They've really been forgotten throughout this whole thing. We need to get back to live gigs. We need to get back to a level of normality and test the waters and see how we get on. And if it happens that we find there's something wrong with it, that it's not working out, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. It's not playing with people's lives because we've got 90% of the adult population has been vaccinated. So if you feel you're very vulnerable and you're in a very vulnerable situation or a vulnerable situation whereby you can't get a vaccine, don't go to the live event. Isn't that the answer? Just don't go. There has to be at some point a level of personal responsibility. And Michal Martin is now saying we're going to wait till two weeks after the schools go back before we have some sort of roadmap out of this. And then by the time that happens, we're into October. They were into flu season. There's got to be pressure on the hospitals. Hopefully not, but pressure on the hospitals anyway because of another respiratory virus. And then it'll be, oh, we can't do it now because we're into October. This is flu season. Actually, we'll wait till Christmas. And then we wait till Christmas and, oh, no, people will be going out. There'll be too many people together. Actually, we wait till January, February. It'll go on forever. 
There'll always be a reason to wait. That's what Paul is saying. And I think he's right. Maybe we should start listening to other immunologists and not just Nefis. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits.